0: Well, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And I am uh, happy and sad to uh, report that this is going to be our last podcast episode for the season. We're going to take a Christmas break and get back to you in the new year. And this season... We've been we've been talking about cultural pressure points, uh, that's been our theme. And we've been zeroing in on a lot of different topics where the divide between godly and ungodly thinking is really sharply highlighted. Um, we've talked about about justice, about racism, uh, violence, and the use of force, Darwinism, um, the gay identity, and I've got. Joe, with me here in uh, in the studio, which is Joe's office, and as we wind down, we prepare to take a break for a couple of weeks. Uh, we're just we're taking a break. We're taking a look back at the beginning. We're taking. I want to talk about why we're doing this at all, um, like why the podcast exists, why the Ezra Institute is here. And Joe, one one of the things that we're fond of saying around here at the institute is that. That we're working to introduce people to the f- truth, freedom, and beauty of the gospel of Jesus, and like th- this is necessary work. This is ongoing work because there's a lot going on in the world that seems to highlight ugliness, falsehood, and a loss of freedom. And this has affected a lot of Christians. We're not uh, we're not immune from the- to this. Um, and I was just thinking that uh, that for this episode, maybe you could tell us about. What, what do we see going on in the world? Uh, what do we see in the news that's suggestive of a conflict at the root civilizational level?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I was reflecting on this uh, recently, actually, in, a, in an article that I did on uh, uh, Poppy's pride and political coercion. Um, looking back, you know, this year was a significant year, wasn't it, because in November we had the 100th anniversary, it was the armistice of the conclusion of the Great War, of, of World War I, and so much was being made of that in the media. Uh, a lot was being made of that uh, by politicians, and of course we were able to watch commemorations and celebrations and uh, special events for actually a week or so um, after November uh, 11th. And it got me thinking though about the contradiction that there seems to be fundamentally in our culture where on the one hand we will make a tremendous amount of as we should of recognizing the sacrifices and the battles of the past for freedom for liberty from tyranny of course remembrance day now is not just about world war 1 it's about also world war 2 um, and, of course, uh, certain subsequent conflicts. But people tend to think about World War I and World War II primarily. And, um, and of course, in particular, World War II was a battle for freedom and liberty uh, against uh, tyrannical uh, statism, uh, f- uh, against uh, a, a national socialism, And uh, a a vision of, um, uh, if you will, the the leader, the the, the sort of great hero. The the hero of the ancient world isn't isn't the sort of hero that we think about today. Uh, The hero of the ancient world uh, was a sort of semi-divine being. And here you had the Fuhrer as head of the fatherland um, and this attempt to really, in a certain sense, uh re-establish an imperial um empire um some would argue even a sort of re-establishment of the roman empire
0: no one of the things that he was uh he was very interested in was uh architectural projects Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of them came down a lot of them sort of didn't start because of the war but uh But architecture and legacy, like a legacy, like literally graven in stone, that would last for thousands of years, that was a, a major project of the Third Reich.
1: Yes, I, I've seen some of the drawings that were, that were that were done, that were planned for what was going to happen, both in in Germany and in France. Um, and uh, there's no question that that was all all part of it. So here, here, here we find ourselves. You know, hundred years since World War One. 60, 70 years um, since uh, World War II and celebrating the the sacrifices and the heroism of the past and expressing gratitude for them, and yet at the same time finding that right now in our culture we see those freedoms that we've long cherished and appreciated being trampled underfoot uh, and sold down the river, as it were. I mean, Winston Churchill called World War II the battle for the survival of Christian civilization. And yet the irony, Ryan, is that a man like Churchill, who believed in nation states and was a patriot and national sovereignty and small government and liberty and freedom of speech and the family and protecting these institutions, uh, his social conservatism today would be regarded by modern progressives as fascist. And yet he was in the battle against fascism, real fascism, true fascism, yes. and not this made-up version that uh, we get, we're thrown at by the new left today. No, that's just a slur. A slur, exactly. Um, but the, but that's the irony, and uh, I posed the question, actually, in a recent article, whether the people in Canada um, and Britain and even the United States who fought in World War II or World War I, would they recognize the values and commitments of our current civilization? And would we even be able to get the people of our own time, should we be confronted with a similar situation, would there be the kind of sacrifice, uh, a willingness to sacrifice so much on behalf of others, on behalf of the future, and on behalf of freedom that we saw in the past? And I find myself a skeptic with respect to that. Uh, I don't see the moral will, I don't see the religious underpinning uh, present anymore that would be necessary for that kind of commitment.
0: No, we see um, like actually in a lot of cases we see quite the opposite, don't we? We see, I mean it's not like it's a widespread phenomenon, but it would have been unthinkable a hundred years ago to have people defecting to, to an opposing side. Like you've got uh, You've got Canadians and Europeans, uh, like, renouncing their citizenship and going to fight on side with groups like ISIS.
1: Yes. Yes, that's been a phenomenon that we've seen for the last few years now of um, uh, significant numbers of people who uh, nationalized or are uh, adopted within those nations, many even born within Western nations who in, uh, when some kind of conflict does arise, they, yes, defect and uh, are, uh, go and fight overseas for the enemy, or um, they demonstrate and march and throw stones at uh, returning soldiers uh, who are coming back home. So, um, no, we're in a very, very different context now. And I do think that that speaks to your question of a crisis at the root Uh, of our civilization, and and it's a religious one. I've been reflecting on this a little bit recently, that um, we see many of the religious themes or the religious motifs of the ancient world now, of the pagan world, have returned uh, to the West. um, And these are, in a sense, producing that crisis of identity um, and a sort of redefinition of of the lexicon where, you know, Words that we used to think we knew the meaning of, like freedom, are being given a completely different uh, meaning. People still talk about it, but they don't mean the same thing by it. I mean, the ancient Babylonians, religiously, their faith was in uh, chaos. Some kind of original chaos was at the root of everything. And so for them, uh, history um, and the battle of history really was effectively perpetual revolution. The only way to see renewal was revolution. So all of history for the Babylonians was, was always a state of great nervousness and tension because when was the next revolution coming? When was the next cycle of revolution? Um, and so you had a um, there was no vision of moving towards a, uh, a free society um, in ancient Babylon because you were always rulers were always on the lookout for the next revolution that they needed to quash uh, the Persians their religious worldview uh, was that there were you know two uh, ultimate principles of good and evil, light and darkness, truth and falsehood. these were eternal principles of spirit and matter, one was lesser, one was higher um, in terms of the uh, uh, how they uh, you know, as it came to expression in Greek thought anyway, but these were these were because they were eternal because they were um, forever in conflict. the notion that one would ever overcome the other, so that yes you 'd see the triumph of truth and freedom and justice over uh, evil and injustice that was never part of the Persian worldview. So they had a syncretistic society that was tolerant of everything uh, and incorporated everybody and everything and every cult because there was no, in the end, truth and justice to fight for in history. There was an equality of good and evil.
0: Yeah, Andrew Sandlin was uh, was on the show a little while ago. He, he was talking about um, the Christian idea of progress and progressivism. Mm-hmm. And that's been hijacked since uh, since the French Revolution. But... Yeah but the idea of historical progress is a Christian it's idea. It's a totally
1: Christian idea.
0: Like the, ba- the ancient Babylonians, they couldn't be on the wrong side of history. That wasn't... <laughs> <That's
1: right. laughs> yeah, oh, to be a Babylonian yeah. and not be on the wrong <laughs> side <laughs> of history. Uh, and which, yes, so there was, there, was a, there was a backward look there to chaos in the hope that some new revolution would, uh, would, would be regenerative. The Persians couldn't see progress because... Of their view of the equal ultimacy of these two warring principles. And then, of course, you had the Greeks. And in the yeah. end, the Greek view is best uh, summed up in their tragedy. Um, you know, Sophocles uh, being one of their um, uh, poets uh, and writers who summed up really the Greek view of history that was, man is a victim of fate, he's a victim of the gods, he lives in a capricious universe. Yeah. It's endless cycles. No real progress toward freedom, justice uh, and and, and truth can finally um, be made um, because man is always whatever he tries, whatever he does. He ends up he's a victim Um, and uh, he's a victim of this capricious universe. Now, if you think about that, Babylon, Persia and Greece. Chaos, syncretism and tragedy. What do we have in the modern West as we've moved back towards, uh, as we've steadily abandoned at the root of our civilization, a Christian outlook? We've, we've taken a view of origins that looks back to chaos and chance as ultimate, that somehow at the foundation of everything, behind everything, in the end is just chaos. It's just chance. That's the root of the universe, no creator God. We've, At the same time, we've picked up uh, this relativistic notion of the persians that in the end really is there a meaning in the ba- in the great battles of history isn't there really in the end uh, uh, a, a a pure relativism when it comes to notions of of truth and falsehood of good and evil of right and wrong uh, you can't really judge another culture you can't really say your culture is superior to any other you can't certainly in a politically incorrect way, hold up the Christian world and life view and social order as somehow inherently superior to an ancient pagan one or a modern uh, uh, Eastern one or an Islamic one or an atheistic one. Um, This is all just thrown up by uh, history. And in the end, history doesn't finally mean anything because uh, between the principles of good and evil, there can be no final triumph of truth and justice. We don't know what they are. They're relative. And so we have that Persian tolerance. And then we picked up a Greek motif as well today, which is, um, I'm a victim. Life is tragedy. We're caught in the wheels of, of this chance. In the, at the end of the day, we're caught in the, in the wheels of fate. There is no sovereign God. There's no covenantal purpose of God in history. And so the only thing I can do is paint myself a victim and hope that in doing so, painting myself a victim and and pointing at the oppressor and blaming uh, the oppressor and saying that I am a member of the oppressed, that somehow I may be able to get a leg up um, in society uh, if I can claim to be part of a victim group.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of mandated equalization. Right.
1: Hence the, the, you know, the Greek, uh, the Greek. Blueprints for uh, the ideal society were utopian, as you know. Um, you know. Plato's Republic, and they were manifestos for a kind of communism, um, uh, a form of socialism. So it's very interesting when you think about it. We, we come out of what Churchill calls the, the the great battles for the for the survival of Christian civilization against totalitarianism, against uh, essentially a pagan religion of blood and soil uh of the of the third reich um and here today we find ourselves in the grip of these really ancient pagan principles that are g- giving spiritual direction to our our culture
0: yeah yeah and it's uh, it's it's interesting to me like as you're talking about these ancient civilizations who we still know about who we still study and have records of like you can't uh, you can't live in total consistent in total consistency with a principle of um relativism no like the persians went and they like where where there were persian conquests there was persian civilization brought with you you can't uh, you can't leave your culture at home no. um and the like the thing that uh the, the thing that i i think about when as you're talking about this is that like christianity as we're talking about a civilizational conflict is so much more than like having our doctrine correct. You know, it's, it's one thing, it's one thing to affirm the right doctrines. It's one, like even, even a difficult or an unpopular doctrine, like at the end of the day, we don't, uh, we don't risk anything by believing safely between our ears in total depravity or Mm -hmm. predestination. Um, but we like we show up by our actions what we actually believe about the way that the world is about uh, about ourselves about others about god mm-hmm. um so if we can uh, if we can switch from from that uh, that subject to to address christians any like specifically christians who would uh who would resonate with a reformed outlook um why? Why are? How? How have we allowed ourselves to to get to this point, uh, where we've got we're at this civilizational conflict? Like, where have we dropped the ball? Where have we neglected to live out biblical faith in mm-hmm. all, in all its fullness?
1: Well, there's obviously more than one answer to that. Um, I think there's a, a multiplicity of ways in which we've uh, dropped the ball. But uh, if we if we come maybe to the to the root of um, one or two of them, uh, first of all, I think we would have to say that, as you've quite well put it there, we've allowed our doctrine to exist in the abstract. Yeah. And so we have affirmed and been willing to affirm certain uh, orthodox evangelical reformed principles coming out of the Reformation, um, of the gospel uh, we 've even created movements for a uh, for an affirmation of uh, you know gospel centrality and so forth but uh, just as the for as we 've said the Babylonians the Persians the greeks their their beliefs their doctrine their worldview worked itself out in a vision of society of culture of political life um, We have not given attention, especially in the last uh, 60 years or so, to what the implications of these biblical truths actually mean. I mean, for example, you mentioned total depravity. Well, if you believe really in total depravity, how might that affect a Christian view of how society, social order, how political life must be structured? Uh, If man is a sinner and uh, he is, um, in all of his being, affected by sin, then to invest total power in any one institution uh, is going to be highly problematic. Uh, So ensuring that uh, there is a um, a separation of powers, I mean, this is one of the reasons why what we call the modern West arose and, and the absolute power of the monarchy is broken in the... 17th century uh, in England, even in a sort of somewhat Christianized form, uh, there was still a hangover in the, in the English crown there of a pagan idea of monarchy um, that was unchecked. And so when you actually see the Christian principle there, actually the reform principle working itself out, you see how it begins to affect what we think about uh, political life. Um, so, there's, uh, there's just one illustration, of course, but there you see how the, the, the problem of our doctrine living, uh, staying in the abstract, or, or, or remaining church doctrines, and by that I mean ecclesiastical doctrines, as though there's no application of the notion, let's take another doctrine that we would be fond of as Reformed people, uh, would be predestination. So, is predestination simply a church dogma? Is it simply a doctrine to be believed, in which we comfort one another as Christians that we are, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and that nothing shall snatch us out of God's hand, that we've been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world? Well, of course, it's a marvelously comforting doctrine. And when I became reformed back in my twenties and discovered the, the beauty and, and the wonder and the security of the doctrine of God's personal providence and predestination it was a tremendous comfort but <clears throat> if that doctrine remains in the abstract and we don't recognize what the, what the predestinating power of God means for our understanding of culture and history then in culture and in political life and in social life a non-christian doctrine of predestination will take its place if God is not the, in absolute government of history in terms of his predestinating purpose, where he has established uh, his king on Zion, his holy mountain, and all the nations of the earth shall come to worship. Psalm 2, of course, speaks of that great messianic psalm of Christ's kingship. Um, and we know that God holds the reins of history so that every Sunday we can enjoy Sabbath rest and rest and rejoice in him. If we don't have that security in social cultural life, then we are going to create a different doctrine of predestination, and that is the predestination of man by man. The social sciences, as we call them today, is just that. They are the control of man by man. It's a a, a humanistic doctrine of predestination. Well, because the church has left the doctrine generally now of total depravity, predestination, and I could add all the other major Christian doctrines inside the ecclesiastical sphere in the life of the church and not applied them more broadly in the life of the family, in our thinking about education, um, in our thinking about social, cultural and political life. Let's take the Kuyperian doctrine, for example, for our uh, reform purposes of of sphere sovereignty, of recognizing the uh, very clearly three spheres of family, of the life of the church and that of the state that these are distinct they have a particular jurisdiction under god and they're directly accountable to god by leaving god's sovereignty in the life of the church only we fail to bring it to bear in these other areas and as a result we lose uh, the culture the doctrine of infallibility the infallibility of scripture um, of god speaking the infallible word is another if you leave that doctrine as a purely church doctrine as an ecclesiastical idea. That, ah, well, yes, of course, we believe in the authority of the divine word. But if that stays there and is never brought out of the life of the church, into the family, into the culture, into social order, into uh, political life, in the claims of Christ not made known in all of these areas, then a different word of authority, a different form of absolutism, a different form of claim for an authoritative word will come. And we see it there in the idea of democracy. Demos Kratos, people power, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. So if you don't bring the voice of God into the public space, then a a whole different voice claiming that kind of power and authority will take its place. I don't know how many times we have to see this played out as Christians. We've just seen it in the 20th century. We've just remembered with poppies uh, the devastation of what it means when man tries to arrogate to himself God's authority in social, cultural, and familial life when we do not bring the word of God that the church is called to present to the world, not just to the church. When we don't bring it to bear in the totality of life, we always suffer the consequences. And so where you began with this uh, comments on civilizational decay at the religious root, Linking it now to the question of this abstractionism in Christian doctrine, this is not in any way that we are mitigating or minimising the importance of the preaching of these truths of doctrine in the life of the church. We're simply saying that the scope of the authority of that word cannot be imprisoned in the pulpit, and where those doctrines are imprisoned there, uh, the re- the result is decadence. Which means literally falling off.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So something. Uh, something that I've heard you say before is in in response to uh, to a common evangelical trope that we're living in a post-Christian society. Mm-hmm. Is uh, you you push back on that and you say like, ac- actually no, we've never had a fully Christian society. We're still we're still getting the t- getting to that. Mm-hmm. Can you just say more about that in relation to, uh, to where we're at uh, in the world?
1: Yeah, so I, I, would, uh, I would argue that, of course, I would not dispute that if you go back to the high Middle Ages or you look at the Reformational period or you look at the Puritan era or even the Victorian age, uh, you can point to periods of history that were publicly more apparently deeply influenced and shaped by Christian convictions and views, by Christian truth, than we presently are at the moment. That is true. But nonetheless, as you look at it carefully, you'll always see that uh, even in the Western world, this uh, Christianization was never root and branch. There was always syncretistic element Um, there was always a uh, well let me borrow a term of uh, that reformed philosopher Doiver there was always another ground motive at war with the Christian basic uh, religious principle and so working it out to a point of consistency I would say is something that the West has not yet seen so um, I would say that it's true that we are a, um, uh, a de-Christianizing people at the present time. Sure. But we're not yeah. post-Christian.
0: We're not where we once
1: were. No. Um, yeah. In fact, I would say that to a certain extent it would be impossible for us to be post-Christian as a society because even in our rebellion and our, rep- our uh, against Christian truth and uh, moral principles um, and cultural life at the present time, a very overt uh, rebellion against it in in that we've been in sort of, for example, one area would be the area of law. We've been repealing biblical law for 60 years in the West now. Um, Nonetheless, uh, we we have not been able to find a civil discourse, a public discourse that can shed its Judeo-Christian roots, um, and we may try all manner of uh, gymnastics and manipulation to try and redefine the lexicon. But nonetheless, we are still inescapably grounded and rooted as Western society in these basically Christian assumptions about rule of law, about freedom, about truth, even about progress, as you said, even about the very idea of of, in a sense, Christianity, the Bible, it would be more accurate to say that the Bible invented the idea of history as such, as something moving from this point to a fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Um, so, no, we've not shed, uh, we've not, we're not post Christian in the sense that we cannot shed what we were, what has shaped us for centuries. Um, we are in a period of de Christianization, a period of apostasy, of rebellion against that. Um, but we 're not post christian, um, and so I would say uh, that it would be just as accurate to say we remain uh, more or less pre christian um, uh, maybe that 's just as inaccurate. some might criticize me for that i don 't know what the best word would be that I, I perhaps backslidden is maybe the best uh, use of the term we, we are we, we, we are backslidden, and uh, we have yet ever to get to a point where we have expressed culturally and politically a consistently biblical christian principle for cultural and public life um and uh that's an opportunity that lies before uh people in the future
0: yeah yeah i actually like the the language of Mm pre-christian and just uh, just the idea that it carries that you know there is as you said, there's, there's opportunity here, there's, mm-hmm. there's a vision for the growth and expansion of the message of the gospel and of, uh, of a general turning towards righteousness.
1: Well, when you think that, uh, when you consider that, you know, as you speak to the millennial generation, but especially now, uh, what is it, Generation Z they're talking about? Yeah, uh, they, I, I, I don't lose know, count, the, yeah. <laughs> they, um, they
0: multiply as quickly as genders.
1: It really is uh, difficult to keep up. But the, the the fact is that on the university campus today, you're often encountering in the West now a total ignorance mm-hmm. of what the Christian message actually is. Yeah. Complete ignorance. Yeah. With my generation, at least in Gen X, you, many people would, would still been raised in the church. Many had gone to Sunday school. Many had had Christian influence in their childhood, in school, still by law, actually, in in Britain at that time, Um, that's gone now. And so you really are encountering the the, uh, rank humanist, uh, or pagan even, who is totally uh, biblically illiterate, knows nothing of the gospel. That does represent a remarkable opportunity. At the same time, it represents, of course, a danger. Um, Cardus, for example, here in Canada in collaboration with the angus reed institute recently published the findings of a survey in canada about religious freedom right and yeah. asking canadians you know do you value um, religious freedom of course here was one of the things that these wars were fought over in the last century um uh, do you uh, what value do you place on religious freedom does it do you think it adds something to canadian society that's of value and only 59 percent of people Said that it did. Really? So, I mean, uh, you're in a culture that, on the one hand, as we've said, has just taken off its poppies, and on the other, only 59% of the population is saying that they actually value religious freedom as an important part of Canadian life. And when you look at what happened with the summer jobs fiasco in Canada, where there was basically a religious test. To see if you could get to to to, to, to see if uh, you would be awarded a grant where you are for students uh, doing some summer jobs programs, or whether you look at um, uh, what the uh, CMDs are facing right now in the courts in terms of the battle for freedom of conscience for physicians, or 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 the bill I think Bill 24 in Alberta um, with these government government mandated GSAs there where. Uh, It's illegal for a principal to inform parents that their child as young as five or six years of age even um, is attending one of these gay-straight alliances and uh, uh, that that's now against the law for the state to inform parents what it's doing with their children. Um, You've got the Alberta government as well um, threatening independent uh, Christian schools about the language of um, being made in God's image, being God's image bearers. And if they don't remove this, they're going to be shut down by the government. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, If you go over the the pond to the British Isles and you look at the anti-hate campaign in Scotland, orchestrated by the Scottish government and police, uh, wanting people to spy on one another for hate incidents because they haven't got enough crimes to solve. Um, uh, these sort of Orwellian types of measures
0: I saw something today, just a just a headline i didn 't read it, but I saw the he- a, a headline that you can now be reported for on on uh, American college campuses for dirty looks <laughs> <laughs>
1: really a microaggression yeah. I suspect that is yes uh, well, and i I read in the press today about a, another teacher being fired for in the u s for misgendering. Uh, a student who was claiming, you know, uh, uh, I think it was a boy in this case who wanted to be called a girl or vice yeah, versa. Yeah, yeah. Um, this has happened in the UK already. Um, we've got street preachers being arrested, as you know. Um, we've st- we've got the case even here in Canada of um, of William Watcott who is facing criminal prosecution for distributing um, uh, gospel flyers with warnings about uh, the dangers of a sexually promiscuous lifestyle. Um, he could face two years in prison. So you, you've got this incredible contradiction that we're looking at right now between the centenary of the freedoms of the great fought for during the Great War and World War Two, and the almost blind uh, surrender of uh, those freedoms to the point where in Britain, uh, Theresa May has not offered... Asia BB asylum, um, despite the fact that she's being hunted door to door by mobs wanting her execution for on a on a uh, fabricated charge of blasphemy because Britain is so afraid of afraid of its indigenous Muslim population that they don't want to offer her asylum. I mean, what would what would a Winston Churchill have thought of all of this?
0: Yeah, man, Uh, (laughs) Man, the
1: the world's in a bad way. It's uh, (laughs) these are these are difficult times.
0: Uh, so, lest lest anyone get the impression that uh, we've just got a case of the winter blues here, um, we're not we're not bringing we're not bringing these things up to just sort of self-righteously and helplessly gesture at, you know, how bad things are. Quite the contrary. Um, mm-hmm. This this is the podcast for cultural reformation. Um, and here at the Institute, we've, we've got some, some big upcoming plans for 2019 and beyond. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can you just tell us a little bit about what, uh, what's sure. coming up?
1: Well, to put that in context, uh, before we mention some of the details, what's important to remember when you think about all of these things, whether you're thinking about your family life, your church life, the education of your children, your vocation, even your recreation, Everything that you do and I do represents a plan for the future. Everything. Based on a vision that we have for history. Scripture gives us a vision for history, that that, and that's what informs the Institute. That's what's informing everything that we're doing. It's informed, certainly informed m- my life in, in ministry in church planting and school planting and the work of the EICC today is that if we believe that Christ is king, and we're celebrating, right, this time of the year, what are we celebrating most? We're celebrating the birth of the king. Uh, that uh, the one born in a manger is the king. He's, he's divine. Hail, uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Um, once in royal David's city. Uh, you know, all of these great carols sing about it, we are recognizing and celebrating the kingship of Jesus Christ and that, the entrance of that kingship into history and that he rules and reigns. Now, if we believe that, depending on what we believe religiously, fundamentally at root, that, is, that, that means that everything that you and I do based on this fundamental belief is a plan for the future. How I govern my home, what I preach from the pulpit, uh, how we educate our children, what we spend our money on, uh, where we invest our time and our resources. All of it, when you analyze it, is a plan for the future. And if you actually, this is a very good exercise for people to do who are listening to the the podcast is to actually think not just about their own life. But about their church and its message, uh, about their vocation, about what they're seeing in culture and recognize that. What's going on when we highlight things like the Scottish government or um, these teachers being fired or um, what's happening to uh, doctors in Canada right now? Um, All of these things or what's happening in the schools, these things represent a plan for the future. They envision a particular kind of future. Mm -hmm. Something is being aimed at and these are instrumental in getting you there. Uh, and so everything that we do in our lives is a plan for the future. And I, I want to encourage everyone with that thought, actually, that, that when we think about these things and as we act in history as Christians, what we are doing manifests our plan for the future. Is it God's plan? That's the question. Is our plan for the future, does it mesh with what God says is his plan for the future in Psalm 2? or in ephesians 1 or in colossians chapter 1 uh, or in uh, revelation 1 5 Uh, uh, is this consistent with seek first the kingdom of god and his justice or his righteousness and all these other things that you need all these things that the the pagans jesus says run after now that will be added to you as well uh but seek first the kingdom so all we do is a plan for history so our Uh, Our plan for the future here at the Institute is, of course, the kingdom of God. Uh, That's what we're praying for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we've had a year of uh, preparation, of hard work, of setting things up and preparing ourselves at our new study center. And I suppose um, foremost on our minds uh, would be our academy programs next year which includes our regular Christian Legal Institute, which we do with lawyers, um, which will be good. Uh, Our um, already pioneered uh, worldview leadership camp for our high school age students, 14 to 18. And uh, we're looking to possibly run two of those now this coming year because we were full last year. And uh, in fact, the last couple of years we've been full. And uh, there seems to be a real demand there amongst parents and grandparents for, for that. Um, so we're going to be offering a couple of worldview leadership camps. And then we are, in particular, very excited about launching the H. Uh, Evan Runner International Academy for Cultural Leadership, which we're calling the Runner Academy for short, to save our breath. Uh, rolls off the tongue eas- easier. Uh, in which we are going to be pulling people together for a 12-day intensive program with faculty from around the world um, at our beautiful center uh, to really root and ground people in a biblical world and life view, a scriptural philosophy, and arm them with a cultural apologetic to take those christian doctrines that we treasure and love out of the abstract and into the realm of full application in each area of life and thought i mean that would perhaps be the best way to summarize it whether it's law medicine politics business the arts uh, entertainment um, economics uh, whichever field whichever sphere education um in the in the in the public space the life of the church you know uh, those going into um Christian uh, ministry in the church Uh, in all of these areas we want to be able to uh, equip you know those between 19 and 40-ish to that sort of that that younger generation some of whom are emerging leaders some of whom are already stepping into positions of leadership now um, to equip them with the tools uh, necessary uh, to apply biblical world and life view for the reformation of cultural life remember that for the EICC culture is the public manifestation of the religion of the people so culture is religion externalized so this is not some sort of add-on it's not a sort of subsidiary Oh, you're a christian oh are you interested in culture maybe you can do this no you are a culture maker as we've said throughout this series you are a culture builder whether you like it or not everything you do is a plan for the future whether you like it or not how can we do that faithfully how can our faith be th- thought through and lived out consistently and how can we be ready to uh stand for truth and refute the lie in our generation
0: right right so it's uh, yeah it's it's not for or what should i say like it's it's not it's not a question of whether but of which mm-hmm. right like nobody Nobody sets out to build a heap of rubble. You set out to right. build a house, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. but what it, it needs it needs deliberate planning. It needs forethought. It needs uh, right. starting with the end in mind. Yeah, um,
1: and actually, you know what? Jesus himself said, "No man sits down to, to uh, this, uh, gets up to build a house without first counting the cost." And uh, there is a cost to the kingdom of God. There's a, there's a cost to God's house, His temple. Uh, and we as a a people in our generation need to understand what that cost is. And uh, that involves us uh, understanding where the culture is at, where we are today, and what it really means to fulfill the mandate to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Um, And with the academies, that's what we are aiming at doing. So these these are... uh, with Runner and, and uh, especially, we, we have a brand new opportunity here. Um, I've been involved in something in England giving direction to something called the Wilberforce Academy for quite some time now, mm-hmm. and we've seen tremendous success there. In uh, these That week-long program has been run out of Oxford or Cambridge each year. But one of our frustrations has been the limited amount of time we have to really get into all of the meat that we want to get into yeah because this is such a revolutionary life-changing mind-altering uh deprogramming um, yeah. experience yeah. for most people most especially students and younger professionals
0: and that's that's the that's the language that uh, that we hear from people who have come through this program that's that, right you know it takes well, i took my four years of law school or my two years of law school or my four years of undergrad and yeah, just sort kind of flipped it upside down.
1: Yeah, we had a, a doctoral student say that uh, it had taken six years, had been more valuable to her than six years of university education and turned it all upside down. Uh, that was five days.
0: What, what is it about uh, about this kind of program that, uh, that has that kind of intense um, transformative power?
1: I think basically, Ryan that has to do with the fact that we are not just dealing with um, outcomes and ramifications of how you how can you put a Band-Aid on this problem or that problem? Mm-hmm. How can I have a quick response to this question or that question? How can we chuck a Band-Aid on this issue or that issue? Um, and in fact, discover that uh, um, the, temp- the solution is temporary at best Um, at worst we could be casting out a devil to have seven worse return right Um, if we are not doing this if we're not coming at these issues and and the problem of our culture from a distinctly coherent robust biblical world and life view perspective in fact if you think about it many of the um, we would say that in the area of christian apologetics for example there's a danger of us giving in to the premises of unbelieving thought at the outset. And so um, if you allow the opposition to draw the box into which you must serve, um, you may find that you can't serve in the box. Uh, It's impossible for you to serve in the right box from the outset. And,
0: uh, And this is why Christian school teachers or Christian nurses are getting in trouble for wearing a cross around their neck.
1: Right, precisely. And the thing is, you, you can you can help that uh, Christian nurse, for example, sure. by going through the courts and helping her at a tribunal. Sure, absolutely. And that's important that yeah. we do that. Yeah. But is that the root of the problem? No, we're not getting to the root of the problem there. No,
0: we're not going to fight for your right to go back to this godless institution and, and quietly wear your
1: jewelry. Right. There has to be a sense in which we are not merely... Uh, trying to put our finger in the, uh, the holes now in the dike. Right, um, yeah. But uh, how can we actually stem the flow? Um, and so the, I think what makes it life transforming, what makes it so impactful, is that we're not just giving a set of, here's a bunch of ready responses you can use. Here's mm-hmm. a few techniques mm-hmm. you can employ. Uh, and find that actually you end up doing exactly what non-believers are already doing. Right, um, right. In response to say justice uh, issues or whatever else, now what we're saying is that at the foundation, at the root of all of these issues, basically, is a religious challenge. It comes down to religious, philosophical, worldview presuppositions and assumptions. And until we get the right lenses on our nose, we won't see clearly. And I think what happens in these intensive worldview teaching training experiences is that all of a sudden you give that person the right set of lenses to wear and the things that they kind of intuitively knew that something was wrong, but they couldn't quite put their finger on it. They couldn't quite articulate it. They felt unease, disquiet, sense of frustration, uh, a sense of running into a brick wall. Suddenly the right lenses go on and boom, it becomes clear. Suddenly things start to make sense. And when they start to make sense, then you can begin to build a coherent a response. Uh, a, let me put it to you this way. Um, a response to systematic unbelief, not with piecemeal um, patchwork answers, but a, res- but a response of systematic belief uh, that really gets to the to the root re- that's radical in that sense. You know, we, we hear a lot about the word radical today. If you really want to be a radical Christian, this is what we 're talking about let 's get to the root that 's what radical means to get to the very root of something and uh, let 's deal with this problem let 's lay the axe as uh was it John the Baptist uh, to the root of the trees right uh, and not just prune we need to we need to lay the axe to the root of the tree, and I think that 's what forms this tremendous um, A turning point. It's sort of this paradigm shift that they go through when, and it's like being given a new Bible. It's like being handed a a new word. It's suddenly everything is seen in this new light. In your light, we see light. Most of us as Christians, Ryan, we don't realise that we've been what I've sometimes called Toyota Prius Christians. Right? We're hybrids. We we have an experience of Jesus, of God. Um, And we believe some Christian propositions. Um, But actually, uh, underneath that uh, icing, we find that uh, in uh, the that much of the cake is humanistic.
0: Right. And we're trying to put a
1: Christian icing on a humanistic cake. And we feel that there's something wrong. There's something doesn't taste right about this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's some there's a contradiction here. Um, And. I think what the Runner Academy does, what the Worldview Leadership Camp does, and what CLI does, Christian Legal Institute, uh, is really change that. It it, it addresses the ingredients of the whole thing. It's not how can we put a Christian icing on top of this issue and make it taste better. No, it's how can we actually remix these ingredients? How can we get to the very, uh, the foundational religious recipe here to see something actually change? And the clarity that comes with that and then the uh, the applications that then follow from that become crystal clear.
0: Right. Right. <clears throat> well, Joe, who should uh, who should come to these uh, these events, these training programmes?
1: Well, the Christian Legal Institute. We're we're aiming for um, uh, pre-law and law students and young yeah. lawyers. So all three of those. It's a partnership we have with the Christian Legal Fellowship. It's the only christian legal training available anywhere in canada
0: that's right um that's right
1: so we would want to encourage uh those who are pre-law students who are thinking about going into law uh, law students and those early in their legal profession to seriously consider coming to the christian legal institute the um the the worldview leadership camp um while there we want uh christian parents really and christian grandparents to say my children need what you're talking about they need this broader framework it's not enough for them just to know some bible stories and have an experience of jesus they need to know and be grounded in a christian world and life view it from origin meaning morality destiny culture everything what does it mean to uh, look at life, look at the world, look at culture from a distinctly Christian point of view and therefore be prepared for university. How can you equip your children to be ready for everything they're going to confront at the university or in the workplace? So we're looking there for young Christians between about 14 and 18, who high school age, who are committed Christians uh, and who want to really learn and equip themselves to know their faith, understand its implications, and defend it culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's who that's for. And then the Runner Academy is really for, we've said the age group, roughly 19 through 40 ish. Basically, that age group, um, who are uh, maybe students at university, again, younger professionals, uh, emerging leaders. Um, If you're early 40s and you really think you're worthy, we'll consider you. Uh, um, Young at heart. Yeah, if you're young at heart there. Um, And what we're looking for there is people who believe that they are moving in one way or another or wanting to consider going into um, the public space in some way. As I say, business, media, art, the arts, uh, education, might be law, medicine, politics, uh, the sciences um, these different areas where they think that um, cultural leadership may be something that's in front of them the church uh, people who are training in seminary, seminary who are wanting to be pastors pastors are some of the ones that need this young pastors or seminarian students need this kind of equipping the most it's not the kind of thing you get given at seminary um, and yet if you want to be able to preach and teach in a relevant way uh, so i don't love that word relevant but because the the word of god is always relevant but if you want to be able to apply that word effectively into the life of all the students and professionals you have in your church and have a word that's not imprisoned just in the ecclesiastical sphere that but speaks to all of life and culture um we want those uh, students and young ministers to come as well so that's who runner is for um it's the goal there is equipping a whole new generation of leaders in the vocations and in the life of the church, to reform, to transform culture, assault and light.
0: Yeah, and all—all all of these are. Uh, some of these have been been in the works or been uh, been running for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. The Runner Academy. This is our debut year coming up in 2019. Yes, um, www.esrainstitute.ca is the place where you can find uh, more information about all of these programs, with links to registration, contact further reading yes Joe thanks a lot for for being here for telling us uh, helping us understand where we
1: stand it's been fun as always Merry Christmas to you Merry Christmas to you and to all our listeners
0: thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity please take a moment to like, share and rate the podcast on social media and your favourite listening platform For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.